Welcome. You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Hello, and welcome to the Black Experience Hour, a 60-minute weekly program bringing you news from a variety of sources. This one is being recorded on the 9th of December for the listening week that begins the 10th. Your reader's name is Susan Shirey. First articles you will be hearing are current events. This one comes from the New York Times. Brittany Griner lands in U.S. after prisoner swap. This was posted on the 9th. The homecoming of the American basketball star puts an end to a 10-month ordeal in which she became a bargaining chip between Moscow and Washington. This is written by Edgar Sandoval, reporting from San Antonio, it says. Here are the latest developments. Brittany Griner arrived in the United States on Friday after she was freed from a Russian prison in exchange for Victor, pardon me, for Victor Bout, the convicted Russian arms dealer. The trade ended 10 months of captivity for Ms. Greiner, whose conviction on drug smuggling charges became entangled in Russia's deteriorating relations with the United States since Moscow's invasion of Ukraine. The American basketball star landed at the U.S. Army's joint base San Antonio Fort Sam Houston and was then taken to the Brook Army Medical Center the facility confirmed in a statement where she would be examined and receive any necessary medical treatment. Here is what to know. A Russian court has sentenced an opposition politician, Ilya Yashin, to eight and a half years in prison after finding him guilty on charges of spreading false information about atrocities committed by Russian troops in Ukraine Russian officials refused to free another jailed American, Paul Whelan, despite ceaseless efforts by U.S. diplomats to include him in an exchange, said Secretary of State Anthony J. Blinken. The Greiner family expressed sympathy for the Whelan family and said, We pray for Paul and for the swift and safe return of all wrongfully detained Americans. Ms. Greiner's release has also focused attention on another U.S. citizen known to be held in Russia's penal colonies, Mark Fogel. In an interview on Friday with Maria Butina, a Russian member of parliament who herself once served a little over a year in U.S. prisons, Mr. Bout said that his fellow Illinois inmates were sympathetically inclined toward Russia and echoed the Kremlin line, that America was trying to, quote, destroy us again. Steve Cook, 70, a financial advisor whose home is next door to Brittany, pardon me, to Brittany Griner's South Phoenix residence, said he was looking forward to her return. He said that he had tried not to bother her, even when his basketball-playing young granddaughter wanted to meet her. But two years ago, they saw her outside and seized the opportunity. Griner signed a jersey for the girl. He said, she's a very kind person. 
I can't imagine being stuck for a year away someplace. As your reader, I looked for more on this topic from our usual sources, but I believe it's too early in the breaking news for them to have been posted by the recording time. Next, coming from afro.com, posted December 7th, written by Catherine Pugh, as a special to the Afro. Warnock clinches a victory in Georgia, U.S. Senate race. The seesaw race in the Georgia state runoff election for the U.S. Senate handed incumbent Democrat, pardon me, Democratic United States Senator Raphael Warnock a victory against former football player and Republican candidate Herschel Walker. According to information released at 12.54 a.m. on December 7th by the Georgia Board of Elections, a total of 3,518,244 voters took part in the runoff election. Warnock had 1,804,189 ballots cast in his favor compared to Walker's 1,714,055 votes. The state has around 7 million registered voters. This was Ralph Warnock's fifth time on the ballot in two years for the Georgia Senate seat. He had won all the past races, but had not gained the majority of the votes, which led to the runoff. This victory gives Senator Warnock a full six-year term in the United States Senate. Republicans had a lot riding on this race. A win for Walker would have put them even with Democrats in the U.S. Senate with 50 Democrats and 50 Republicans. Democrats would have still controlled the Senate with Vice President Kamala Harris having the authority of the tie vote. Often Harris has found herself making compromises with Democrats like Joe Manchin of West Virginia. However, the Warnock victory gives the Democrats a clear majority with Republicans holding only 49 seats in the U.S. Senate. In January, because of the election of Warnock to the Senate, Democratic majority leadership can set the makeup of the committees as they choose. What this does is keep Democratic legislation from being watered down, compromised, or denied a vote by the full Senate. Importantly, for President Biden, the victory of Warnock gives him the flexibility to nominate whoever he wants to fill the nine federal appeals court vacancies and six dozen federal district court vacancies. It also allows for the confirmation of other positions to be filled by the administration. The election of Warnock also gives power to the Democrats to issue subpoenas without support from Republicans. The victory of Warnock in Georgia further signals a change in the demographics and a rise in the black, Latino, and Asian populations. The win lends Democrats more hope in swinging Georgia in future elections in the Democratic column. Some Republicans are pulling away from former President Trump and looking for new leadership of the party, while others are doubling down on their support of his rhetoric. Collectively, $401 million was spent on the Georgia Senate campaign, making it one of the most expensive races in history. When the polls closed, Senator Raphael Warnock 
held a less than 0.2% lead over his opponent, Herschel Walker. In less than five minutes, the lead switched, giving Walker the lead and then flipped again in two more minutes, putting Senator Raphael Warnock back on top. That was the story for the next few hours, with political pundits trying to predict the outcome of the race. It was 10.30 p.m. when major television networks like CNN declared Senator Raphael Warnock the winner of this highly contested race. It was 11 p.m. when Walker gave his concession speech and nearly 11.15 p.m. when Senator Warnock gave his victory speech, which was live-streamed from his official social media accounts. He proclaimed, Against unspeakable odds, here we stand together. As he ended his one-more-time tour and campaign, Warnock thanked God, his mother, his family, and Georgia residents for his victory. More on this comes from thegrio.com, written by Michael Harriet. Herschel Walker's Near Miss and the Myth of Identity Politics. Posted December 8th. This is an op-ed piece. Phew, that was a close one. If you haven't heard, on Tuesday, Democratic Senatorial Candidate Reverend Dr. Senator Raphael Warnock, pardon me, narrowly defeated Special Agent Herschel Walker in a runoff election for Georgia's U.S. Senate seat. Casual observers and professional pundits are still stunned that so many voted for Walker. However, the reason why an inspiring werewolf with no political credentials, ability, or experience came so close to winning a seat in America's highest legislative body is simple. Identity politics. I can feel the collective sigh of those asking why we must, quote, make everything about race, and I get it. No one is more tired of talking about race than black people. However, any astute poli political pardon me, analysis that doesn't point out the racial elements of the Georgia Senate runoff is not worth the bandwidth it occupies. Race wasn't a part of the story. It was the story. The Walker versus Warnock heavyweight bout was not about ideology, conservative values, or the quality of the candidates. It wasn't even about politics. It was about whiteness. Is there any other logical explanation that justifies Walker becoming Georgia's Republican Senate nominee? Was it his education and political experience that attracted so many white voters? Were they outwitted by Walker's intelligence or hoodwinked by his honesty? Were they voting for family values or Walker's dedication to the pro-life cause? Although the term identity politics is usually associated with black Democratic voters, it has been a part of the conservative political toolkit. Since Barry Goldwater's 1964 presidential candidacy, racial politics became the Republican Party's primary tactic for gaining and maintaining white political power. But with the rise and hopeful demise of Trump, Identity politics has evolved from an unspoken political strategy to an ideology that can only be described as white people versus everybody. Of course, some may point out that Herschel Walker is a black man, which is a very good point. However, the most racist part of identity politics 
is the ill-conceived notion that black people will vote for any black candidate. In fact, 99.999% of the black people who have ever cast a ballot in an election have voted for at least one white candidate. Most voters, including white people, vote for the candidates that will help them realize their political goals. However, I understand why Republicans assume black voters will chuck their political beliefs into the wind and vote for a random black guy. That's what white people do. Numerous studies and analysis of voting patterns show that white voters of both parties are more likely to switch parties when the candidate is black. While it is easy to simplify this phenomenon as racism, perhaps the more complex reason is that, for many white voters, protecting whiteness is a political goal. And for a racially homo pardon me, homogenous party that is bereft of ideas, how can you grow a rapidly shrinking base in a multiracial democracy if you are devoid of ideas, policies, and positions? You can find a black man who is willing to protect your white identity. This is why Herschel Walker became the nominee. This is why he almost won. If Republicans were concerned with Christian values, fiscal conservatism, or any of the issues they claim to care about, Herschel Walker wouldn't have stood a chance in a conservative state like Georgia. Of course, they say they believe in things, but when given a choice between a college-educated evangelical Christian who actually pulled himself up by his bootstraps, Warnock, or a lying, pro-abortion, deadbeat dad who committed black-on-black -black crime, who did white Georgians choose to represent them? According to exit polls, 70% of white voters cast ballots for Herschel Walker in Georgia's midterms, while 81% of non-white people voted for Warnock. A CNN poll taken days before the runoff election shows that 69% of white voters supported Walker and 91% of non-white voters preferred his opponent. In the runoff, only three majority white counties, Clark, Baldwin, and Cobb, voted for Warnock. According to Georgia's Secretary of State, the data is clear. Warnock won the black vote. Warnock won the Hispanic vote. Warnock won the Asian vote. He was re-elected because he won the vote of every non-white demographic in Georgia. And Walker won the white vote. To be fair, the Caucasian-centric punditry class has historically soft-shoed around the GOP's brand of racial politics with white-friendly political euphemisms like the Southern strategy, economic anxiety, and family values. After explaining how, quote, soccer moms, evangelicals, and the people in flyover country will cast their ballots, political white-splainers will comfortably dissect the politics of the black vote and the Hispanic community. Apparently, black and Hispanic and Asian people don't go to church, live in the suburbs, or take their children to soccer practice, parentheses, probably because we don't have family values. I understand that identity politics is all they have. Aside from giving more money to rich people, they don't have an economic policy. They can't simultaneously claim patriotism while attempting to overthrow the government. 
I also understand that they have suffered numerous injustices throughout history, including reverse racism, a stolen election, and the Alabama Crimson Tide being left out of the college football playoffs. But before we can truly unite as a country and preserve this make-believe democracy, quote, you people must first pull yourselves up by their bootstraps and focus on education and stop playing the victim. If your only path to political power is bamboozling your base into believing that whiteness is real and must be protected at all costs, you need a new identity. More election news from the Griot, posted December 9th. 18-year-old becomes youngest black mayor in America. The recent high school graduate is the newly elected mayor of the city of Earl, Arkansas. Arkansas native Jalen Smith has made history as the youngest black mayor ever to be elected in the country, according to Fox 13. Smith, 18, is the new mayor of the city of Earl, that's spelled with an E on the end, after receiving 218 votes in a runoff election against opponent Nemi Matthews, Sr., the city's longtime street and sanitation superintendent who obtained 139 votes. The town's population is just under 2,000 people at roughly 1,800. Days before Tuesday's election, Matthews explained to Cincinnati's WKRC that he and Smith share a close bond and their families are acquaintances. Matthews stated, no animosity, anything. Far as me and Jalen are concerned, everything has been cordial. If I can help him do anything, I'll do it, and likewise with him. Smith, who recently graduated from high school, hit up Facebook to celebrate following his win Tuesday night. The teenager thanked supporters, quote, for stepping up, getting people to the polls. And he noted, it's time to build a better chapter for Earl, Arkansas. Speaking to NBC News following his win, Smith said he had the craziest facial reaction when I won. He continued, it was such a blessing. The young politician told Fox 13 last month that if he's elected mayor, his primary goal is to improve public safety in the city. Secondly, tear down abandoned houses. Transportation here for the community, bring a grocery store here, he said. You're never too young to want to make a difference in your community, Smith told WKRC in November. Smith, a student at Arkansas State University Mid-South, has a learning disability, the Hill reports, but said it does not take away from what I am able to do. In fact, it motivates me to keep achieving greatness, he added. When somebody tells me no, I don't stop just because somebody tells me no. There's always someone waiting to tell you yes, said Smith via Fox 13. Still reading from the Grio in non-election current events, Trevor Noah officially exits The Daily Show after his final episode as host. The comedian gave a special thanks to black women on his final episode after hosting the weeknight comedy central show for seven years. This was posted on the 9th. Trevor Noah said goodbye to The Daily Show on Thursday. 
The revered comic hosted his final episode of the Comedy Central weeknight news show parody after a seven-year tenure, which began after the exit of comedian-activist Jon Stewart. Noah first announced his decision to leave The Daily Show during an episode in September. He told viewers, My time is up. He spent his last show thanking his correspondents, his family, and the longtime program's viewers. During Thursday night's episode, Noah also engaged in humorous one-on-one -on -one exchanges with the show's mix of correspondents, a list that includes Roy Wood Jr., Jordan Klepler, Desi Lydic, Ronnie Ching, Dulce, Dulce Sloan, and Michael Costa. Klepper got testimonials of well-wishers from fans in Midtown Manhattan during a Man on the Street clip. Noah had emotional and poignant reminders regarding black women. While expressing how grateful he was to the viewers and studio audience, he said, Special shout-out to black women. I've often been credited with having these grand ideas, said Noah. People say, Oh, Trevor, you're so smart. I'm like, who do you think teaches me? Who do you think shaped me, nourished me, and formed me? From my mom, my grandma, my aunt, all these black women in my life, but in America as well. His tribute to black women extended to thought leaders and activists, including Roxanne Gay, Tressie McMillan, Cottam, Zoe Samudzi, and Tarana Burke, whom he thanked for their guidance and forgive my mispronunciations. He went on to explain why black women carry the moral pulse of the nation. I tell people if you want to truly learn about America, talk to black women, because unlike everybody else, black women can't afford to F around and find out. Noah told his audience, black people understand how hard it is when things go bad, especially in America, but any place where black people live, when things go bad, black people know that it's worse for them. Black women in particular, they know what S is. They know what happens if things do not go the way it should. With the South African funny man exiting The Daily Show, the series will be on hiatus until January 17, 2023. On its return, Comedy Central will employ several guest helmers until a permanent host is selected. According to Deadline, the slew of celebrity guest hosts will include comedians D.L. Hewley, Wanda Sykes, Marlon Wayans, and Leslie Jones, actors John Leguizamo and Cal Penn, as well as former Daily Show correspondent Hassan Minaj and former Minnesota Senator Al Franken, each will reportedly appear for week-long stints. Noah, whose latest comedy special, I Wish You Would, premiered last month on Netflix, will be returning to stand-up comedy. The Emmy Award winner will embark on his national 28-city off-the-record tour in 2023, kicking it off in January 20, pardon me, on January 20th in Atlanta. At press time, it will end on December 3rd, pardon me, in San Francisco. Produced by Live Nation, Noah's tour will include stops in Louisville, oh, pardon me, that's St. Louis, Boston, Memphis, Tennessee, New Orleans, New York, Phoenix, and Detroit. Other dates, 
stateside and international, may be added. Moving back to the afro.com for another commentary piece that, pardon me, written by Benjamin Todd Jealous. Title, How Can We Influence the Courts That Influence Our Lives? This was posted December 7th. As I write this, the final few races are being called in the midterm elections that were held weeks ago. It's clear that the House will be closely divided, with Republicans holding a very small majority. History shows that in midterm elections, the party that doesn't hold the presidency typically gains a lot of seats in Congress, oftentimes in a wipeout of the party in power. Republicans' gains were comparatively tiny this year, but they probably should have been even tinier. The reason is the far-right Supreme Court and two rulings that hurt black voters this cycle. Two Deep South states, Alabama and Louisiana, redrew congressional maps months before the midterms. Incredibly, given the high proportion of black voters in those states, the maps allowed for only one majority black congressional district in each state, that is almost certainly a violation of the Voting Rights Act, which prohibits states from packing minority voters into fewer districts in a way that reduces their power. And you don't have to take my word for it. Federal courts said the same thing and ordered both states to redraw their maps. But official, pardon me, state officials opposed to black voting power fought back, and in both instances... The Supreme Court allowed them to go ahead with this year's midterm elections with maps that just happened to preserve, quote, safe Republican seats. It's infuriating, and those are only two of the infuriating decisions that have come out of this court since Donald Trump and Mitch McConnell succeeded in stacking it with enough ultra-conservative justices to make a supermajority. I know that the inner workings of the courts, especially the Supreme Court, can seem really remote in our day-to-day -day lives. Most people don't know any judges, and if they meet one in court, it's probably happening on a very unpleasant day. In fact, my guess is that a lot of people would rather not think much about the courts at all. But we have to. We need to pay attention to who sits on our courts and how they get there, because there is such an enormous impact on our lives, whether we, pardon me, whether we realize it or not. The Supreme Court's impact on the House majority is just one example. Those actions by the court will affect what businesses, pardon me again, what business gets done in Congress and what laws get passed or not passed that impact how we live and what rights we have. Judges get their seats in different ways especially at the state level. If you live in a place where state-level judges are elected, it's critically important to get informed and vote in those judicial elections. When it comes to federal judges, the Senate decides who will be confirmed. So every time you cast a vote for a senator, it should be for the candidate who will vote to confirm fair-minded judges with a commitment to civil rights. The Biden administration has been doing a very good job nominating diverse, highly qualified judges who have this commitment. 
I believe in supporting senators who have voted to confirm these judges and withholding support from those who haven't. The same goes for the presidential election, where we will face again, pardon me, which we will face again in less than two years. In 2016, Donald Trump ran on a platform to name far-right judges to the Supreme Court who would ultimately overturn Roe v. Wade. And that's exactly what happened when he won. And now the court is moving on to do other damage, too, like denying black voters fair representation in Congress. So what do we do? We get informed, we organize, and we vote in the next election. The same thing we do to confront so many issues this country faces. Next election seems too far away. There is something you can do in the meantime. Call your senators and tell them to confirm the federal judicial nominees that are still waiting for a Senate vote between now and the end of the year. There are literally dozens of nominees picked by President Biden including many people of color and nominees with strong civil rights backgrounds, just waiting for Senate action to take their seats on the courts. We can show we care by calling our senators and telling them to confirm these nominees now. Courts are going to keep showing us how much of an impact they have on our lives. We need to exercise every option we have to impact who sits on them. Still reading from Afro.com. This says, Buy Word in Black. Posted December 5th, Building a Black Male Pipeline into Public Education. Author, Isaiah Sid. South side of Chicago native Abdul Wright grew up the oldest of several siblings. His family moved through low-income housing at one point, they found themselves in a homeless shelter. But Wright, who was named 2016 Minnesota Teacher of the Year, is a prime example of how an excellent education positively changes the outcome of a black man's life in America. I have students who I see in newspapers that get killed. I have young people who don't know what they're t about to do for the next week of their life, said Wright. It's triggering for me because it reminds me of my childhood and I can't save them. He was one of nearly 900 black male educators gathered in Philadelphia for the fifth annual Black Men Educators Convening, which was sponsored by the Center for Black Educator Development, a national nonprofit founded by veteran Philadelphia educator Sharif L. Mekki. Since 2019, the organizations worked to, as its website said, boost the number of black educators so that low-income black and other disenfranchised students can reap the full benefits of a quality public education. Innovation, brotherhood, and black excellence were some of the words used by Wright and other panelists and attendees, teachers, executives, education advocates, and others as they discussed the importance of building intergenerational relationships, the unsung sacrifices educators make, and how to ensure the next generation of black boys want to become teachers. But from a lack of classroom resources to poor working conditions and racism on the job, 
there are significant barriers to ensuring black people join the profession and stay in the classroom. Increasing and retaining black men in education. I think to some extent the work of retaining black male educators has to begin with the fact that we have gotten black male educators. Dr. William M. Hayes, the CEO of Boys Latin Philadelphia, tells Word in Black. Boys, pardon me, Boys Latin in Philadelphia is a nearly 900 student charter school in Philadelphia. He went on, I think we have to acknowledge we actually did the work of getting them. Hayes said when addressing black male teacher retention, the conversation must include the percentage of black men that graduate college and do choose to go into education, making education among the top five careers of black men. Dr. Daryl T. Henry, co-founder and recruiter for Region Diverse Educator Program, tells Word in Black, there are millions of jobs in the education industry that black people could be a part of, and recruiting is one of the ways to bring black men into the field. Henry said, I want to help increase that teacher pipeline. One of the biggest non-encouragers of students going into education are current educators. If you want students to go into education, you need to tell them about the positive parts of it. There's struggles in all industries. And part of recruitment involves calling on and connecting with our history and ancestors. You will be someone's ancestor. Act accordingly. The need to implement ancestral teachings as a means of attracting and keeping black educators grounded the conference, beginning with the words of Grammy-nominated poet Amir Suleiman. When those were, pardon me, when those weapons are inevitably formed against them, your granddaughter can whisper through gritted teeth, I am the granddaughter of so-and-so, said Suleiman. You will be someone's ancestor. Act accordingly. In addition, Dr. Greg Carr, chair of Afro-American Studies at Howard University, spoke on the importance of educators connecting black ancestral history to their instruction. Doing so, Carr explained, helps build intergenerational connections with those that came before them and will come after them. Making those deep-rooted connections will better equip teachers to effectively instruct students in a way that intrigues them and when they see themselves reflected, they are more likely to want to pass knowledge on to others by becoming teachers. I think there's a much richer, deeper, and more historical context than we need to ex pardon me, that we need to explicitly teach our children in the curriculum, said District of Philadelphia Superintendent Tony Watlington. He said, Equally important, we should inspire the young to have a love for learning and a love for self. Building a Black Male Teacher Pipeline Part of the work of the Center for Black Educator Development is running the Black Teacher Pipeline, an initiative that helps build interest in the teaching profession and support high school and college students who choose to make education their career. At the conference, four fellows, Tamir Harper, Harper pardon me, Amir Williams, Horace Ryans, and Folly Kuvi 
addressed building intergenerational connections through mentorship. Kuvi, a junior at Howard University, was fortunate to have five black male educators through his K-12 learning experience. He said their leadership created a lasting impact on why he chose to be in education. In addition, instead of being seen through a negative light, Kuvi said his black male teachers viewed they saw and taught me as a human. I'm extremely grateful for all my black male educators, he said. Along with embracing mentorship, translating knowledge and experience in a way that enables younger generations to grasp it is also crucial. As a millennial and an older millennial at that, who has brought up, pardon me, who was brought up under a generation above me, it's a translation, said Hayes. He explained that he looks at mentorship from multiple angles and said educators need to be able to, quote, translate what was valuable and drew you into education because it's not going to be the same. Sandra Alberti, Director of Strategic Partnerships at Student Achievement Partners, which is a nonprofit focused on challenging K-12 standards in classrooms, tells Word in Black, although she's always been a champion of equitable education and the Common Core state standards over the last three years, she has reflected on what that fight should look like and what role the rigid standardization of learning has played in discouraging black children from seeing themselves as teachers. The responsibility of policymakers. It's not just the progress that's been made, but in some cases, in a lot of cases, the harm that was done by weaponizing expectations, said Alberti. Alberti, who is white, was transparent about the white saviorism subconsciously projected by many organizers like hers, or pardon, many organizations like hers. She says they've begun exploring a new design model that encompasses conversations with the people who would be directly impacted, which is one way they are understanding the needs of kids from the beginning. In addition, there's a responsibility to show up in spaces with other reform organizations to encourage them to shift toward truly understanding the academic and personal needs of students of color. Alberti said, it needs to not be a choice. It needs to be how we define if we're doing a good job or not. Moving back to the Grio for our next article, which is on food sovereignty. It's a topic that I like to follow on this program when I can. This is an archived article, comes from July 11th, 2022, for the Grio Lifestyle. Urban gardeners are laying down roots for black food sovereignty in New Orleans. Urban gardeners are helping black communities in New Orleans build their own gardens to achieve food independence. For years, accessibility to fresh food has remained limited for low-income black and brown communities. Fortunately, urban gardeners in New Orleans are working to level the playing fields in their neighborhoods. New Orleans is well known as the hub for the most delicious Creole food in the world. However, its otherwise rich agricultural history has been paved with adversity, especially for black citizens. The Crescent City has many food deserts that leave its black residents unable to regularly purchase healthy options, and the lack of access is no accident. 
companies strategically place or don't place grocery stores in specific neighborhoods based on socioeconomic and racial status, while organizations like the National Black Food and Justice Alliance work to promote black food sovereignty in those areas, food insecurity is still the status quo. Planting seeds of change, urban gardeners have taken the initiative to serve the communities that need them most. Reedy Brooks, urban gardener and executive director of the edible holistic landscaping firm Glory Gardens, trains people in greenhouse management and plant nursery care. During an interview with PRISM Reports, she explained that she's not just interested in food justice, she believes true liberation comes from food sovereignty, meaning neglected communities create their own gardens for themselves and by themselves. According to the Center for Planning Excellence, the city's lacking government infrastructure made the impacts of the COVID-19 pandemic even more devastating in terms of food access. About 35% of low-income black neighborhoods and neighborhoods of color in New Orleans face food insecurity. The lack of healthy food options are even more dismal for black people living in the Lower Ninth Ward in New Orleans, who, according to the U.S. Census Bureau, account for over 90% of residents in that area. Still haunted by empty lots, debris, toxins, and other environmental stains from Hurricane Katrina, the Lower Ninth Ward has been delayed in development compared to the rest of the city for years. 2012 provided even more evidence of structural food disparity when student journalist Rosa Ramirez from the New York Times Student Journalism Institute gathered data using a study from Social Compact and additional resources. Her research revealed New Orleans had, quote, only one supermarket for every 350,000 residents, and they are often in locations that are more than a mile from where low-income residents live. As generations have endured cyclical food scarcity within certain neighborhoods, local organizations and activists are working hard to bridge that gap. Urban gardener Crystal Sims Cameron is the founder of the nonprofit for the horticulture. As an avid gardener, she helps black women in New Orleans start home gardens of their own. After being financially strapped during the pandemic herself, Sims Cameron now not only supports her family, but other New Orleans locals as well. While the work continues, black and brown communities in New Orleans are doing what they do best, persevering. Organizations like Sprout NOLA, Navigate NOLA, Project Butterfly New Orleans are more pardon me, and more are advocating for environmental justice and systemic change. The time for liberation has been ripe for the picking for years, and people like Sims Cameron will continue harvesting resources for food sovereignty. Our next article is an in-depth piece from the New York Times Style magazine. It was posted December 2nd, written by Scott Brown. At 91, Adrian Kennedy is finally on Broadway.
What took so long? The playwright behind Ohio State Murders, opening this month, has a theory as to why. It's because I'm a black woman. The playwright Adrienne Kennedy will make her Broadway debut this month at the age of 91 with Ohio State Murders from 1992, a play she tried for years to commit to paper. I couldn't do it, she recalls. It was eight, pardon me, it was 1989 and she'd been commissioned by the Great Lakes Theater in Cleveland, her hometown, to write about her experience as an undergraduate decades ago at Ohio State University. She was about to return her advance, and then she says, I just happened to be in the earthquake. Small and unassuming, she's five foot one, with a voice that evokes the sing-song politesse of Hollywood's golden age, Kennedy has a winking sense of humor that might seem incongruous with her body of work, which is often described as dark, difficult, and abstract. Parentheses. In 2018, the New Yorker critic Hilton Owls called her over a long and startling fugue composed of language that is impactful and impacted but ever-moving, ever-shifting. In parentheses. Kennedy herself is a shapeshifter. In her tenth decade, she is still full of giddy, nervous energy, her moods and memories changing as fast as the tonal jump cuts in her plays. On this October morning, she delivers, I just happened to be in the earthquake, with the rhythm of, I just happened to be in the neighborhood. A moment from now, she'll recall the way Ginger Rogers wore her hair in Kitty Foyle, the 1940 melodrama that was one of her mother's favorite films. Earlier, she was mooning over Frank Sinatra in Higher and Higher from 1944. I still want to marry Frank Sinatra, she says, sitting amid various curios, a bust of Caesar, a West African djembe drum, in her 61-year-old writer's son Adam's home in Williamsburg, Virginia, where she's lived for the past decade along with his wife Renee and their four children. She says, it doesn't go away. Why? Why is that? Since her theatrical debut with Funny House of a Negro, off-Broadway in 1964 at age 32, Kennedy has addressed the heart and head sickness of racism, the confusion of sex and gender, and the illusion of the self with incantatory paradoxes, visceral symbols, sidelong pop culture references, and violent contradictions. Funny House the first of more than 20 plays she's written over six decades, is set inside the collapsing consciousness of a black, young black woman, Negro Sarah, struggling with self-division and battling self-destruction. She agonizes over her racially mixed parentage and finds herself split into dueling avatars, Sarah is also England's Queen Victoria, is also the assassinated Congolese leader Patrice Lumumba, is also Jesus, parentheses, a hunchback yellow-skinned dwarf dressed in white rags, as the script says, is also the Duchess of Habsburg, parentheses, 
perhaps with notes of Betty Davis playing the Empress Carlotta of Mexico in 1939's Juarez. All of them are losing their hair in clumps, skin color and hair texture, texture, perpetually racialized, are here deployed to evoke the horrors of the body, often to comedic effect. Quotes, I have something I must show you, the jumpy duchess says to Jesus, closing the shutters before lifting her headpiece to reveal that, as the stage directions explain, her baldness is identical to Jesus's. Moments before, a severed head, also bald, plummeted from the rafters. This, in the midst of America's civil rights movement, was Kennedy's answer to the corrosion of racism. Grotesquerie, absurdity, horror, and heart, layered with rapid transitions and discursions. The play was also controversial, she says now. Certain people thought it was just perfect. That's what kept it alive. Other people thought that I took drugs, that I hated black people, that I hated white people. That slippery, dramatic style made the playwright sui generi for over a half century. Her earthquake reference feels like the kind of dry joke you'd find in one of her plays. Except it's not rhetorical. Kennedy really was in the deadly Loma Prieta earthquake, which destroyed part of San Francisco's Bay Bridge in 1989. Then, 58, she was teaching playwriting at Stanford, where she hid in a closet and thought she was going to die. Over the days that followed, navigating the Palo Alto campus amid aftershocks, Kennedy passed Sorority Row and the university's Lake Lagunita. They both reminded her of Ohio State. Suddenly, it was as if her alma mater had returned to her with all of its hidden traps and secret deadfalls it held for its few students of color. Parentheses. When she matriculated in 1949, she says, fewer than 250 of the school's 20,000 or so students were black, which is consistent with other estimates from the time, although the school didn't measure racial demographics back then. She flew home from California to New York to her West 89th Street apartment. Dense with books, memorabilia, the chunky 40s Philco radio she'd listened to with her family back in Ohio, and wrote a script that blended elements of film noir, meta-true crime, audience direct address, and surrealistic misdirection. The geography made me anxious, says the narrator of Ohio State Murders, as she wanders the campus. The zigzagged streets behind the oval were regions of law, medicine, Mirror Lake, the Greek theater, the lawn behind the dorm where the white girls sunned, the ravine that would be the scene of the murder, and Mrs. Tyler's boarding house in the Negro district. The story is about a bookish black girl in love with English literature and the emotionally indecipherable white professor teaching it at a predominantly white university in 1949, losing her childhood illusions and then, in a gothic twist, losing much more. Like most of Kennedy's work, the play is a kind of scrapbook, just like the one her mother, Etta Hawkins, kept, which she'd often show her daughter. Many nights, while washing the dishes, Kennedy's mother would tell her daughter about her nightmares. 
Kennedy learned never to throw a violent dream away, to save everything, to draw primarily from herself. She had a younger brother, Cornell Wallace, named after their father, who was seriously injured in a car accident in his 20s and died in 1972. Remembering the process of writing the Ohio script, she says, It just came out in about two days, and I was very upset. She adds, It wasn't pleasant. And then I called up Great Lakes and said, I have a play. That play opens at the James Earl Jones Theater on December 8th, directed by one Tony winner, Kenny Leon, and starring another, Audra McDonald, as Kennedy's avatar, Suzanne Alexander. Parentheses. The Alexander plays, a four-work cycle within her larger corpus, tracked the life and letters of a middle-class black writer-professor navigating racism, sexism, and her own hallucinatory nostalgia. Reviewing a 2007 off-Broadway production of it for the New York Times, the critic Charles Isherwood wrote that Kennedy is surely one of the finest living American playwrights and perhaps the most underappreciated. It has taken more than three decades to arrive on Broadway, but it's taken its creator, who broke out amid, if not always within, the 60s-era theater of revolution much longer, and she has a theory as to why it's because I'm a black woman. Kennedy's journey began in wartime Cleveland, where she was raised by an exacting school teacher and a Morehouse man who headed the local branch of the YMCA and became a fulcrum of the black community. The Hawkins neighborhood Glenville, full of ambitious European immigrants fleeing Hitler and middle-class southern blacks fleeing Jim Crow, produced the creators of the first Superman comic, 1938, and Inherit the Wind, 1955, the co-writer Jerome Lawrence and the celebrated mid-century printmaker John Morning, among many others. At school, Kennedy won prizes, became class president, and at one point, she says, saved a white student's life after he used a racial, me, used a racial slur against a black classmate. But she didn't truly feel othered until she attended college in nearby Columbus, where the white girls in her dorm made their contempt for their black classmates clear, and the professors, quote, didn't see us as people, she says. Once, after she turned in an essay on George Bernard Shaw, a professor kept her after class to accuse her of plagiarism. It was inconceivable to him that this tiny black girl in a pink sweater could write. The reader interjects to say, at this point, I will have to edit for length, and we're going to skip many details of her development now. Kennedy's arrival on Broadway began with a reading. In June 2021, the producer Jeffrey Richards developed a streaming event to aid the Actors Fund, a New York nonprofit. Performance spaces were all but closed, and theater artists were looking for opportunities, so... Leon agreed to direct over Zoom, and McDonald, the actress, signed on to play Suzanne Alexander. McDonald, who had trained as an opera singer, hadn't read Kennedy's work in school and found herself enraptured by the script. Abbas, bespattered, cureless, misfortune, enemy, alien host, battle groups faded to fall on the field today, chants Suzanne, 
close to madness near the play's end, transforming her English literature lessons into a kind of a funeral rite. Once the event was over, the actor said, I turned off my computer. I couldn't move. Gutted like a fish. Not long after, Richards planned a Broadway run. For MacDonald, the production has always, pardon me, has been its own kind of education. Adrian is forever and always a teacher, the actor says. I'll get the email that says, Audra, you need to read this book, or I want you to watch this particular interpretation of Jane Eyre. These lessons have influenced MacDonald to the point that she doesn't just want to bring Kennedy's work to Broadway. She wants to conjure the playwright herself in her portrayal of Suzanne Alexander. MacDonald tells me over the phone she has her own rhythm. And suddenly it's like I'm talking to Kennedy. Even when her voice, pardon me, even where her voice sits, you know, and then she gets a little not lost in the thought, but she's still emotionally tied to all of it, which I find so moving, I want to be able to capture that. I want to be able to bring Adrian. But the question remains, will she come? At 91, Kennedy's not sure she can travel to New York for the opening. Perhaps the next generation will take it from here. In recent years, she has corresponded with Harris when he got engaged in October. His fiancée asked Kennedy to write a surprise inscription on the inside of his ring, and it was with periods between every word, happiness is, to me, greatest thing, which it says is her syntax intact. And Harris mentioned is a reference to Jeremy O. Harris, a 33-year-old playwright who has corresponded with her, one of the rising generation of black absurdists, it says here. Throughout the pandemic, those two writers had discussed a co-production, double billing one of her plays and a new play from Harris about her influence on him, his grief over his grandmother's death, and his suspicion of the theater industrial complex. Who knows when that might happen? Kennedy mostly stays at home these days and, this late in life, doesn't expect the recognition she has been denied. She won't even allow herself to be photographed. I've been around a long time, she tells me. Playwrights aren't icons. It makes me think of some advice she had sent me years ago after I'd had a little success in the theater. It says, you have done the work. Pull away from the scene soon as you can. Crowds of people kill you. And that's the end of that article and the end of our time for this week. Thank you for joining us for the Black Experience Hour. AINC programming is made possible by funding from the city and county of Broomfield. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at www.aincolorado.org or by calling 303-786-7777.